how many of you, by show of hands, there's an actual question, actual response. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever ridden on an airplane? Raise your hand. Okay? I'll leave them out for a second. Look, look around the room. Almost all of us have had this experience. Okay, if you've been on an airplane and a single flight was longer than eight hours, leave your hand up. Okay? We've, okay, look around the room. All right, put your hands down. We have had, uh, we have some serious air travelers here, okay? You will track with this really, really well. Have you ever experienced pain on a plane? The answer is yes, right? So some of you remember a time when, when you would fly on a plane and it would never be full, right? There would always be open seats. And that's no longer really the case. So when you walk in and you see a full flight, in your head, on some level, you think this, oh, what a pain, right? There's some mild little annoyance that comes with a full flight. Why is it great to not have a full flight? More space, right? Lessens the chance of someone psychotic sitting next to you for the next eight hours, right? Um, so my wife and I just adopted from China. Some of you know this. And the excitement of adoption, part of the excitement of adoption is they handed us two two-year-olds. Um, and we have no idea how to meet any of the needs of this two, uh, these two-year-olds. They don't know us. They're frightened of us. There's nothing normal going on whatsoever. The boy was handed to me. The girl was handed to my wife. And that's just how it was. And for the next couple of weeks, that's just... That's who we hung with. That was kind of our charge because there's a lot to do with a two-year-old that doesn't know you. So one of the fun things we thought is this is really challenging. We're in a foreign country where we don't speak the language and we're not sleeping in our own bed and none of our routines are normal. Let's go flying, right? So what we did was we took an in-flight uh, uh, trip from one part of China to another part of China. China's a big place, right? So this is a four-hour flight after we've had custody of these children for some short period of time. Ever travel with toddlers? Yeah, it's fun. Um, in, in, a, in a memorable way. I don't say that in an enjoyable way necessarily. So on this four-hour flight, the last two hours of the four hours, what percentage is that? 50%. The last half of the flight, someone in the plane is screaming. Screaming in a closed space that you can't get out of. That's unnerving for five minutes. It's super unnerving because the person doing that was sitting on my wife's lap. And her name's Everly. So let me talk to you about pain on a plane for a minute. Um, when someone is screaming on a flight for half of the flight, that's a pain. That's unnerving, right? Um, here was Everly's pain. Everly's pain was the unknown the ache that something is wrong, nothing is normal here, and I'm frightened. And I have no other response than just to kind of scream and cry. Here is my wife's pain. She's sitting there, and she is feeling, my wife is very compassionate towards people, so she is feeling the pain of her new daughter. She can't do anything to stop it. That's, that's sort of an internal sort of, sort of pain, right? Um, in addition, she feels the weight of other people's expectations. Why don't you stop that child from screaming? I know they're a gift and a reward. Stop them from screaming right now. So she's sort of feeling that. And then she has uh, the uncomfortableness of volume in ear, snot, tears, water, moisture, 
all over the place. Just, it was a mess, okay? That's, that's Everly and Becky's pain. I'm sitting next to her. My charge is named Tate, and he slept for four hours. <laughs> now, let me tell you the truth. I experienced some pain, okay? Um, I looked over at my wife after four hours of holding Tate and realizing that if he woke up, he could join in the party that, that Everly's throwing. So I don't want this at all. So I hardly move for four hours. So here's my pain. I had a dead leg. I had an ache in my lower back. My right arm was completely numb. When the meal came around, I didn't think about it, right? I didn't get to eat the meal. So I turned to my wife and I started to gripe about my pain. She didn't, she didn't care much about it. Um, how about the passengers nearby? We had some friendly college guys speaking Chinese. We didn't know what they were doing, but they were making little, little like, bird things out of paper. They were doing anything to try and help Everly not, you know, they would hand it to her and she would chuck it back at them. And stuff. Um, so, so our passengers experienced some pain. So all of this is, is, is pain on some level, right? Um, but, but think about it, that, um, that all of that is, is nothing when you compare it to, to a couple of thoughts. What, what if there was some weird airborne disease that went on in that flight and everyone who breathed the air for four hours was infected. All of a sudden, any pain I just discussed or any uncomfortable flight you've ever taken, uh, that, that dissipates. We're talking about a new level of pain now, right? But what about the utter fright of being hijacked? What if someone stands up and says, I have a bomb, right? What about the utter terror of a plane crash? Okay. Now, my father-in-law was a pilot for United for his whole career. If you fall from 30,000 feet in a massive metal tin can, you are going to die. Okay? I mean, that's just, that's the reality of it. I, I think there's actually a market for, for realistic air. You know, and their tagline could just be, giving it to you straight. You know, and at the start of a flight, they would just say, if you want to hear what you want to hear, turn to channel one. If you want to hear what you need to hear, turn to channel two. And when the person gets up at the beginning of a flight, what you would hear on channel two is this. All of you passengers who came in all of these doors, if we die, I mean, if we crash, you are going to die. It doesn't matter if you have a little mask. If there's a mask dropping down, we've lost cabin pressure. A massive part of the plane is now gone. It doesn't matter if you put the mask on your child first or you first, you are going to die. You will also have a little life vest. You probably won't have time to blow up this thing. And if you did, it wouldn't matter. You're going to die. Your seat floats. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to save you. You're going to die. So when you, you know, when you are on this flight, they would just tell you, like, this is what's really going to happen. Not all these other nonsense little things going on. So far, they haven't come up with that. But I think there's a market for it. We've been in a series, a series called, um, called Turbulence. And the reality is this, is that pain that you experience, we're going to talk about a very serious subject this, this morning of, of pain, physical pain. And physical pain is turbulence. It's disruptive. It's scary. Sometimes it hits you utterly without warning. Sometimes you have a doctor kind of like a, 
a captain saying, sit down, buckle up, we're going to experience some rough air. We can't get around this. We have to go through it. But it is non-life-threatening. The pain that we experience in our Father's care in this life is non-life-threatening. I'm talking about eternal life. If you lift your perspective to to the arc of, of, of what's really going on, The turbulence you are experiencing, the pain that you are experiencing in this life is non-life-threatening. You know, God never promises a pain-free life. In fact, quite the opposite is true. And and I know in this church family, we have Bible readers. We have people who open their Bible and read it, and so you know this to be true. It does no good to create false converts by shielding them from the truth. What if tracts read a little bit more like this? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Who doesn't love the word love and wonderful, right? Is that true that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Of course it is. Romans chapter 5, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that. And then you turn the page. Yes, like what else could there be? This is great news. Not only that, the verse goes on to say this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah? And that includes pain. That includes suffering. I think Bible tracts aren't written this way, uh, maybe because uh, it would turn too many people away. But isn't it a disservice to create a false convert, to create false expectations? Come to God and eradicate the pain that you're currently experiencing in, in, in this life. What's quite possible is this. As a new Christian, you might experience pain and begin to doubt if you're really saved. You might experience suffering and hardship and think, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Hear this clearly. There are liars on the airwaves, on the bookshelves, in podcasts, all over the internet, and preaching today. There are liars who are proclaiming a simple message that if you are sick, if you are experiencing many of the turbulence topics that we're, talk, that, that we're talking about, it is due to your lack of faith, Christian. It is due somehow to the fact that you aren't sacrificing enough, obeying well enough, having enough faith. It's a proven point that guilt is a pain intensifier. So pain is subjective, right? You heap guilt onto physical pain, and it's an intensifier. makes it worse. So there are people being lied to in churches right now that are sitting there going, wow, my pain must be punishment from God. I want you to remember something. With all else that we talk about, remember that God is after our deepest healing. God is after you living a pain-free life for all of eternity. And you know how that's produced? That's produced through suffering and pain in this life. The new birth 
the eternal life is going to be pain-free. But that's future. That's not now. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Just jot this down. This was from a couple of weeks ago. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this. So we do not lose heart. Why don't we lose heart? Because we're remembering this, that God's after our eternal healing. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. How on earth, Dave, can you call my chronic pain that you know nothing about light and momentary affliction? Because the Bible calls it that. That's why we're calling this series Turbulence. Remember, friends, in Christ, what you're experiencing right now, no matter how awful it is, it's turbulence. It's not going to end in death. This is not eternal life-threatening. I don't want to diminish the fact that it's scary, that it's super disruptive, but it's not life-threatening. Our Father uses pain, and it sometimes seems to be the only way. We live in a culture that seems to avoid pain at all costs. Do you know that? It's not the same way in in all parts of the world. Why don't you do something for me uh, for, for a moment? Hold your eyes open as long as you can. Right now, just keep your eyes open without blinking. Okay? Here's what's going to happen. Some of you have already blinked. No shame. What happens is first there's some, some sort of mild irritation, and then that mild irritation is going to start to turn into actual pain. And at some point, it's probably already happened, but at some point you will involuntarily, without even trying, you will blink your eyes to relieve yourself of I want to communicate something to you that isn't probably a popular message, and that is that pain is a gift. It's a great book called Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants. And Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants is written by a guy named Dr. Paul Brand. And Dr. Paul Brand uh, became sort of this unique champion of pain. If you were to study pain, you'd realize it's an absolutely fascinating and miraculous gift. It's a design system in our bodies that is phenomenal to study. We have millions of nerve sensors that are not random, but they're masterfully positioned all over our body. And then they're interpreted and respond to, and that's where pain comes from. What's fascinating about these sensors that are placed all over our body is that the speeds vary in terms of how fast they send the message, right? So, you have some, some sensors on your skin. Don't try this at home. But the, the messages from those sensors travel 300 feet per second. I have no idea how these people measure this stuff, but they're a lot smaller than I am. But here's, here's, here's why that's important. When you touch a hot stove, your finger is off of it almost at the, instantaneously as your brain registers, wow, that's really hot. Right? Now, You have different sensors that are a part of your internal organs. Do you know how fast those travel? Two feet per second. That's why when you eat that burrito in the afternoon, right, it doesn't catch up to you until you're done finishing the burrito. You should have stopped halfway, but you didn't because it's traveling at a slower pace. We we don't need to know those as quickly as this. What if this was two feet per second? Then you just send your finger right off. You'd only make the mistake once because you wouldn't have that finger anymore. 
There is a masterful designer to the pain receptors that we have all over our body. Not only does the speed vary, but the sensors vary according to the need. The exact same pressure poke that is on the foot, on the groin, or the eye sends a different message, right? So it's not just the speed, but you could have a sort of a, a poke like this, and that's nothing to your foot. You can just keep on going. But if that's being done in your eye, right, doesn't take much at all. Dr. Paul Brand served in kind of post-World War II England. And he was fascinated to realize that most people looked back on those very painful, difficult days in London. They look on it with fondness, even though it was just the hardest time in their life. He was a missionary kid, and he spent much of his growing up years and ended up moving back to India. In India, pain is just a normal, everyday part of life. You learn to cope with it and deal with it because it's all around you all the time, suffering and pain. They aren't hidden from it. They aren't anesthetized from it. It's just part of your daily experience. And he spent the very last part of his career in the USA. And he said, you know, in the U.S., people avoid pain at all costs. And if they can't avoid it, then they avoid it at a high cost. And he goes on to cite the numbers, you know, something like $800 billion per year avoiding pain. And he makes this comment. He said, interestingly, the countries with the most advanced and accessible pain relief medications seem most ill-equipped to deal with pain that remains. He said, in the U.S., people experience a far higher level of pain than he saw elsewhere, and they were so ill-equipped to deal with the trauma, many of them feeling like it was unfair rather than an accepted part of life like in other parts. Kind of fascinating, but his specialty was leprosy. You know what a, a leper is afflicted with? A leper is afflicted with this dreaded experience. They don't experience pain. And so back in the day, they would have what they would call bad flesh. They would have missing digits, and they had no idea what was happening to them until they discovered, essentially, they aren't feeling any of those pain receptors. So pain, it turns out, is actually a huge um, protector, even from ourselves. A leprosy patient could have a little pebble in their shoe, and they wouldn't change their gait. They would keep walking and walking and walking and walking until that became a festering open sore. Why? Because they have no need to change it. There's no pain there. In the evenings, they would discover what would happen is they would have these missing digits. And what it was was um, rats were coming in and nibbling off fingers and toes and noses and ears and doing things. They had no pain to shoo it away to stop it. He said the, the cure for that one was pretty simple. He said he, he brought cats into the ward, and that solved that problem almost immediately. He was trying to train patients with alarms and all kinds of different things to, to blink and to do these different things to change their gait. And he said this. He said, fascinatingly, they would be super committed for a season, but there's nothing like pain to force us to do what we need to do. Go back to blinking. No one really can win at a staring contest, right? I mean, if you leave your eyes open long enough and you know, sew them open, you lose because now you're blind or you have you know, pain in your eye, right? But you're eventually going to blink because pain forces you to do that. So pain protects you from yourself. Pain protects you from outside 
uh, influences coming in. Fascinating read, fascinating thought. And as a Christian, it brings to light so many verses that many of us have heard over and over and over, but we fail to believe sometimes. Listen to the book of James, which talks a lot about pain. For you know, Christian, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So instead of being quick to muffle pain, let's learn to listen to it. Physically, think about it. Don't we just reach sometimes for the Advil to get the headache away without ever asking the question, why am I suddenly getting headaches? Man, before you reach for the Advil, you can still take Advil. I'm not a doctor. I'll take Advil. But stop and think, why am I suddenly getting headaches every day? That's not normal. Is there something in my life that needs to change? Listen to your pain. Don't just muffle it. Again, don't just reach for the Tums. Begin to think, did I eat too much? Did I eat too quickly? Am I eating the wrong things? Why do I suddenly need Tums? Because I'm in pain after a meal that should be refreshing to my body. How about spiritually? Spiritually, pain is sort of a siren call to us. If you're a Christian, um, pain in your life might be the, the, the Father saying, come back to me. Return, run back to me. Listen to your pain. If you're not a Christian, you're not in a relationship with God, this may be the loving Father saying, this pain in this life is pointing to me. You're running and rebelling from me. You're just, you're just reaping the own fruit of your own lifestyle right now. Run to me. Listen to your pain. You know, one of the challenges and joys that a preacher has on Sunday mornings in front of a congregation like this is this. It's to keep looking at sort of the big unifying story of Scripture. The Bible is one story. It's telling one story. And when we talk about brokenness and pain and loneliness, it keeps driving me back to the Garden of Eden. It keeps driving me back to the beginning. In the beginning, there was oneness. There was peace with God. There was peace with creation. There was peace with one another. And our first parents broke God's rule. And so sin enters the world, and the world is now under a curse. Think about where pain comes from. What does Genesis say? We now work the earth in toil and pain. God blessed work before the fall. What? God called my job good? He doesn't know my boss. God called work and producing good. Now the fall comes. It doesn't take work away or add work. It just changes it. Now it's going to be by the sweat of your brow and a hearty amen to all the workers in the room. We all say, yeah, that's true. How about childbirth? Childbirth, is that easy? Pain-free? Walk in the park? None of those. From what I hear, it's really painful. Right? That's, that's part of the curse. That's part of the fall. How is God faithful in our pain? Turn to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. One of the ways that God is faithful in our pain is this. He has provided us in the scriptures example after example after example of those who have not only endured suffering, but they have made it through suffering. They're on the other side. They're still alive and well, and they're smiling. 
Isn't it true, ladies, that as you anticipate something like childbirth and there's fear, that you look at all these other moms and go, you know what, they live to tell about it, and they're actually choosing to do it again. Maybe I can get through this. If you're going in for a surgery, you, you want to talk to someone who's made it, right? And say, what was it like? And how, how, are you, how are you so happy about it? It looks like there were rewards. It looks like this might be worth going through it. There's something really powerful in our own journey as we are in pain or enter into pain that we see that people have made it. So we learn from others. I want you to consider four people this morning. Number one is Paul. Paul prayed and he took no for an answer. If you haven't been around church much and this is your first time in church or the first time in a long time, here's what you'll realize. You've heard of St. Paul because he did a lot. He wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. God used him in powerful and in spectacular ways. In 2 Corinthians 12, what we have is we have the Apostle Paul writing about not only a miraculous vision that God showed him, but an accompanying thorn in the flesh that God put right alongside the vision. Pick it up in verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writing says this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the great, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Most of you have heard of Paul's thorn in the flesh. What was this thorn in the flesh? The Bible doesn't say. His physical ailment isn't the focus. Do you see that? Man, I think there's a lesson right there. It wasn't even named. It wasn't the focus of it. What God was doing in that was the focus of it. Man, there's a lesson for us in pain right now to not focus on that. In fact, by not naming it, it's probably more universally understood. What did Paul do about it? He prayed. I don't get a sense that he prayed three times uh, just on one day. Paul prayed. He begged God, take this away. Then what he did? He did it again. And then what did he do? He did it again. And after Paul prayed, he did something really powerful. He received the answer. No. If you have kids, especially still living with you, I can almost assure you that you are working on this, parents, with your kids. You are working with your kids just receiving the answer that you give. Sometimes there is no explanation. Sometimes the explanation is beyond them. So you just say, my answer is yes, or my answer is no. And on this occasion, you get no further explanation. Paul prayed, and then he received the answer is no. And he moved on. Doesn't that sound like a submissive 
child in God's household? Doesn't that sound like someone who's received the identity of being a slave and his master's telling him no, and so he goes on about his business and says, the master knows best? Man, there is a massive example from Paul and his thorn in the flesh for us to follow. What's the result of Paul praying and taking no for an answer? Grace and power and contentment. Do you know how much money and energy is being put towards people in this valley for grace, power, and contentment to be true in their life? And in the upside-down world of God, it came through pain, pain that didn't go away. An ailment that caused the apostle um, Paul to beg God three times, please take it away. But then he took no for an answer. After Paul, Peter's probably one of the most famous disciples of Jesus. He was the leader of the pack. Turn in your Bible to 1 Peter, near the end of your Bible. Peter once ran from pain, and now he models and teaches how to endure pain joyfully. Peter is somewhat famous for denying Jesus Christ. Think about the reason of why he denied Jesus Christ. Wasn't it to avoid pain? It was. He knew it was wrong. He knew it was wrong. And he said, but in this moment, I want to avoid pain. My God, in this moment, the idol I'm sacrificing to, the one I'm putting my hope in is comfort immediately. So he avoids pain and denies the master. Then he writes these letters. In 1 Peter alone, the word suffering or its derivative is used 21 times. He's teaching his people about suffering. He has a lot to say about suffering because Nero at the time was having Christians covered with tar, lit on fire, and literally used as lampposts to light his garden. How morbid and sick and twisted and evil is that? That is the cultural context that Peter is writing to Christians. So then Christians are forced to ask the question, how do I deal with pain and suffering? My uncle was just covered with tar and burned as a light bulb. How do I deal with this? What's the Christian response to this? So that's what Peter's writing into. And now Pastor Peter needs to shepherd his people through some serious turbulence. In short, he says that suffering was part of the will of God and that they shouldn't be shocked by it. First Peter chapter 4. Verses 12 to 19, I'll let you read on your own, but 12 to 19 is an amazing passage on Christian and suffering. If you're in pain right now, I'd encourage you to read it. Give some of God's heart behind why suffering and pain exist. But he concludes this section in verse 19. Look at verse 19. <coughs> he says this, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. In summary... Commit yourself to your Creator and continue to do good. Don't let your pain derail you from your relationship with God. Don't let your pain derail you from the assignment that God has given to you. In chapter 5, turn over a page. I want to show you a different section. I was teaching on this at one point at our old church, Valley Church, and First Peter can kind of be summarized this way. The first couple chapters were on salvation. Next couple chapters, he's talking about submission. The last few chapters, he's just talking about all about submission. I mean, about suffering. I illustrated it this way. 
These license plates used to be kind of kind of famous, right? Um, so here's the salvation piece, right? You kind of get in. And then the submission part is this, right? And then the suffering part is this. While suffering, hold on. How do you hold on in suffering? Peter's teaching this to his beloved people. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, he says this. After you have suffered a little while. Do you see what he's doing? He's putting the suffering, he's putting the pain in context. Pain has an end point. It's not forever. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Man, don't skip by these titles of God. The God of all grace means this. God doesn't mess with his children. Look at me. God isn't messing with you. He's not capricious. He's not in a bad mood. He's not just willy-nilly. He hasn't left you off on the side and forgotten you. God doesn't mess with his children. He does not waste tears. The suffering and pain that you are walking through right now has a point. Not just an end point, but a point. The God of all grace is at work in you. Is it an act of faith to receive pain in this moment as a gracious act from a loving Heavenly Father? Yeah, it is. Some people today might be being disciplined from their own choices. So I told you there were liars out there that were mentioning that your pain is due to your own lack of faith. That's sort of a one-size-fits-all. The reality is there's some people who are being disciplined. Peter mentions in chapter 4 that we just read, those who suffer according to God's will. That means there's an ability to suffer outside of God's will. Some of our pain is just living life unintended the way, God, the, the way God did not design it to work. But some of us in this room are suffering because we live in a fallen and cursed world. Some of us are suffering because God is doing something that we don't understand. When we first brought our son Eli home, we had to get some blood tests going because things weren't working properly inside his body. And my wife is a strong, strong woman, but two things that she can't stand are spiders and holding down her children while they look pleadingly at her face because they're in pain. So I had to sit there and hold little Eli's arm down, and the few weeks that we had been together, I felt like all this trust and love, like, gosh, we're starting to bond, we're starting to realize this is a good, loving dad. All of a sudden, he's looking at me, begging for this pain to stop. Why are these strangers jabbing things in my arm? You're standing right there, not just not doing anything about it, but you are physically holding me down, Dad. Oh, that's hard as a parent. But I'm right there with my son in his pain, and there's a point, and there's an end point to this pain. It was for his good. It was an act of grace. It says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is why Christian tracks need to change because part of God's calling includes pain, right? But pain is accomplishing something in our life. Just from the book of 1 Peter, it refines our faith. It perfects our hope. It weans us from sin. It deepens our intimacy with Jesus. 
It trains us in holiness. Peter has a lot to say about suffering. Why me? Peter gives them some answers. Go to the book of James. You'll learn more answers. Go to the book of 1 Corinthians. You'll learn more answers. Go to the book of Romans. You'll learn more answers. Read the story of Acts and how the word of God spread. Amidst pain and suffering and persecution, you'll get answers. God is up to something. If God is allowing pain, it's for a reason. Then he goes on to say this. That God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, Gospel Peter is impulsive and and unsteadfast and fearful and slow of heart. And the Peter of Acts is firm and courageous, ready to go to prison and death. The preacher of the faith, the interpreter of the scripture, he acts like a man possessed, right? That's exactly what he is. The Holy Spirit, God's presence in our life, utterly transforms us such that we now view pain in a completely different category and way than we did before we had the Holy Spirit. We walk through pain in a different way. Now, we can't talk about pain without bringing up Job. Let's bring up Job. If anyone suffered, it was Job, right? The way I'd characterize him is this. He held on imperfectly and he grew. That's what happened with Job. If you're new to the story, basically he gets calamity after calamity after calamity right in a row. All his wealth, all his children, just everything gone. And far from it being punishment due to anger, God is allowing this calamity to refine Job. And he starts off with the most exemplary response imaginable in Job chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, both signs of mourning, deep anguish. And he fell to his knees and did what? He worshipped. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. A plus, Job. Lifetime Achievement Award, Job. That's a remarkable response. He didn't stay there, though, did he? Something about pain, chronic pain, ongoing pain, that kind of morphs and changes us. As you read the story of Job and his suffering drags on and his friends offer bad theology to his pain, he begins to declare his own righteousness at the expense of God's fairness. He says this in Job chapter 23, If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And so on and on, the bulk of Job is these friends giving an inaccurate picture of what's actually happening. And Job, you know, almost I see him backed in the corner. Now he starts to overstate his case, and it's this big mess. And at just the right time, catch this, at just the right time, when the suffering had gone on just long enough, when do I grab Eli away and pull him away from comfort? When the last shot is given, right? When that last little cotton thing and tape is on, boom, at that moment, you're mine, come here, we're done. 
And I want you to hear this. At just the right time, God steps in to release Job from his suffering. If you haven't figured this one out yet, you'll figure it out soon enough. Your timing and God's timing are different. Almost always, God is slow when I think he should be quicker, and he's quick when I think he should have slowed down. Every year that passes, I'm growing to trust God's timing more. At just the right time, God speaks into all of this. And you know what he does to Job? He questions him. He talks about the earth, the foundations. He says, Job, how did I do it? He talks about the oceans and and its limits. Job, you have no clue how I accomplished this. The dawning of the sun, Job, do you know how I do that? And then he goes to the world above, the light and the rain and the snow and the hail and the frost. How do I do that, Job? Then he goes out even further into the cosmos. Do you know how those got established? Do you know what those are called? Do you know how those work? Then he asks him to consider the animals and the lions and the birds, the birth of the young, the sustaining of each kind, the soaring of a hawk or eagle, the strength of the, of the horse, and on and on and on it goes. And here's the message, Job, you are surrounded by mystery. You haven't got a clue how to start the earth or how to sustain the earth. You're surrounded by things you don't understand. Think about you. You know how your body works? Most of us say, no, we don't. We just don't. How about turning that light switch on and off? A handful of us could kind of walk that through and understand it. Most of us don't have an idea. Your phone right now, you could open it up, hit a button, see a face of a loved one in Connecticut. And you're chatting back and forth. Do you have any, any understanding of that? I, I mean, these are just, just minuscule things. Go to Yosemite next weekend. Start looking around. Start considering. God just bombards Job with this reality. You're surrounded by mystery. What did Peter say? Peter said this, commit yourself to your faithful creator. You don't understand. You can't possibly understand the pain you're going through. So the answer right now is just no. Receive that. Job held on in pain and he grew. Job 42 says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Could Job have said that in chapter 1? Absolutely. Does it mean something different in chapter 42? You bet it does. Man, now I know, God, you can do whatever you want. He also admits his own limited understanding and his rash judgment. He quotes back God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what God said. He quotes him. Then he says there, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Do you see the repentant heart in Job all of a sudden? Who am I to accuse you to make rash judgments about you? And finally we see in Job 42 more intimacy with the Holy One. He says, again, quoting from God, here, and I will speak. And Job says, I will question, or God's still speaking, I will question you and make it known to me. And Job says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And when you see a proper understanding of a holy God, listen to the very next verse. Here's what he says, I despise myself and repent. In dust and ashes. This is the same one who had just said, uh, where are you, God, so I can make my case? My mouth is 
filled with arguments. I want to talk to you. I've got a bone to pick with you. All of a sudden, there's a a humility and intimacy with God. And if you know the story, Job is restored in a powerful way. Let me move on quickly to our fourth example, and that's Jesus. Could say so much here. But I want to point this out. Jesus could have stopped the unjust pain, but he didn't. The song we opened, by his wounds we are healed. We're to imitate Jesus in everything. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told to have the attitude of Christ Jesus. Think about what Jesus suffered on this planet. It says, who being in the very nature of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. You know what Jesus suffered? He suffered his rights. He laid down his rights in that, didn't he? It says, verse 7, but made himself nothing. That's self-denial. Jesus suffered self-denial. He told his disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me and die. The passage goes on to say, taking on the very nature of a servant. Jesus was self-effacing. He took up the towel and washed his disciples' feet. It says being made in human likeness. When God is put in a body, it's called meekness. It's not the absence of power. It's power under control. Jesus left aside some things. He could have changed his situation, and he didn't. Not my will, but yours be done, God. Verse 8, and being found in appearances as a man, he humbled himself. He suffered humiliation and became obedient. Jesus was on a mission, even in his pain, to death, even death on a cross. The word excruciating literally means this, from the cross. When you see these words, a releasing of rights, self-denial, self-effacing, meekness, humiliation, excruciating, you have not suffered that which Jesus hasn't gone before and suffered as well. Jesus was called the suffering servant. And listen to the result. Listen to the produce of that pain. Ready? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know who is living that out right now? It's us! Aren't we singing to our King Jesus? The highest and holiest name? Here we are 2,000 later keeping this truth alive. I want to wrap up our time with this. How on earth are we to respond to pain? We know that God's faithful in pain. How are we to be faithful in pain? You be faithful in pain. Notice I don't say that you be faithful in your pain. You be faithful in pain means it could be your pain, it could be someone else's pain around you. First to those who are in pain. Maybe you've come this morning and I saw this in a book, Hurting Beyond Hope. Maybe you're hurting beyond hope this morning. I believe God's brought you here, allowed you to show up to hear a message from him. I really have nothing else to offer you. I must just point you to all that you need, which is Jesus. That's what I have to offer the pain and suffering in this life. I point you to Jesus. And you know what? It's all you need. There's nothing else that you need. 
I don't know if your pain is screaming at you to repent and return to God or if it's God's loving pruning in your life that's drawing you even closer to Him. But you know who does know? Jesus knows. So I point you to Jesus. Johnny Erickson Tata has written some fantastic material and lived a very difficult life. She says this, After more than 40 years of quadriplegia, she's confined to a wheelchair. I'm still learning the cost of following my Savior. But it's becoming clear. I see that pain is a bruising of a blessing, but it is a blessing nonetheless. It's a strange, dark companion, but still a companion. It drives me deeper into the fellowship of sharing in Christ's affliction and closer to that place of intimacy with Jesus that is sweeter than words can describe. We can know that God's role in pain, that pain has a point. It's not a Ferris wheel that just goes round and round and has no point. It is a plane ride with a start, turbulence, and a destination and an ending point. And we can praise God for that today. Some of you here are what I would call compassionate caretakers. You're the spouses, you're the kids, you're the neighbors, you're the parents, you're the friends of those who are in immense pain. So for those of you who are around others in pain, how can you be faithful in pain? First of all, let me say this. It's okay to grieve the loss. We like to say at this church it's, it's okay to not be okay. I mean, especially in church, you ought to be able to come here and not wear a cheery smile because things aren't okay. Go read Psalm 88. God doesn't edit out psalms that don't end with hope. There is no hope in sight in Psalm 88. Yet he leaves it right in the psalm book, right in the hymn book for us to sing right along with it. Here are some action items you can jot down. First, go to the hurting. Go to the hurting. Man, Job's friends get a bad rap, and rightfully so. They did really, really good for a while, though. You know what they did? They got up, and they went to Job. They sat with him for a week. And they just showed up. As disciples of Jesus were to follow people everywhere, Jesus is on a mission to heal people. Jesus is going to lead you into the uncomfortable place of being at the bedside of someone who is suffering. That is not a pleasant place to be. Our own pride, flesh, selfishness want to get us out of there. Follow Jesus into other people's pain. Go to them. The word compassion literally means to suffer alongside Secondly, sit with the hurting. There's some really, really good news. For those of you who have no idea what to say and no idea how to act around someone who is suffering, your presence there is probably the bulk of what's needed. I want you to consider what you shouldn't say before you walk into a hospital room. Many people say, I just don't know what to say. And then they open their mouth and they prove themselves right. Yeah, you probably should have just not said that. Go and do what Job's friends did before they opened their mouth. Go to them, sit with them, cry with them. Say, this is terrible, this is awful. And just be with them. Finally, stay with the hurting. Some of you know this, but there's an initial sort of excitement to help when someone 
has something terrible happen. A car accident happens. Someone's in real trouble. Tons of people show up, bring flowers, bring cards. How are you doing? And then what happens is this. Over time, the excitement wanes, doesn't it? Go to the hurting. Sit with them. Stay with them. The ministry of loyalty is in short supply in our culture. Man, you could be the presence of God to someone by just remaining with them. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I want you to listen to this song appropriately titled, what I said is all I have to offer you this morning. It's the name Jesus. It's just called Jesus. We're going to do something sort of as a response time to pain. You know, I didn't put a name tag on. It's kind of awkward. Because most often I wear a name tag, and we try to put name tags on at this church for a reason. There's a simple, silent barrier to friendship that can go on, and it's this. I happen to know James well enough that this won't be awkward. But I might be at church, and I see James, and I met James last week, and we had a conversation, and he told me his name was James, but then I forgot his name was James. So in a, in a split second, I might see James and go, what was his name, what was his name? And I can't say, hey, chief, how's it going? That seems weird. So instead, in a split second, I might do this. I don't know his name. And I don't talk to James because I don't remember James's name. Isn't that silly? So we wear a name tag, not for us. Most of us don't forget our name. We wear a name tag to give permission for someone else who's forgotten our name to get over that silent little hurdle. Hey, James, how's it going? James, we all love hearing our name. Just admit it, you do. Hey, remember my name? Well, the guy at Eric's Deli knows my name. Oh, it's my name tag, right? That doesn't matter. Here's the thing. There's a silent barrier to those who are in pain. The person in pain doesn't know how to communicate, hey, I'm in pain and I need someone to sit with me. And so they just sit silently. But here's the other barrier. There's a barrier for people on the other side of the pain equation, and they don't know what to say. They don't know how to act. And so in that split moment where they go, oh, I wish I had the courage to do it, but I'm just going to step away and not do that because I don't know what to say. I want to run a little experiment this morning. We're going to sing a song, and in just a moment, I want, I want everyone to stand in the room, except for those who are communicating to those around them, I'm in pain. If that's you, I just want you to stay seated. And for those of you who are standing, as we sing the song, I want you to look around you, and if someone is sitting near you and they're sitting, I want you just to sit with them. The rule is no talking. That means the person sitting doesn't say, hey, here's why I'm sitting. Let me tell you about my pain. Don't do that. Not allowed. The person who's going to come and sit with you, do not ask, do not pray for them, do not even ask their name. Just sit with them. No talking whatsoever. Do you see how this might begin to sort of break the barrier on both sides of how to communicate ham and pain? I'd love for someone to just be with me and someone who goes, I don't know what to say, but we don't have to say anything this time, so I can do that. Let's let the words of this song just kind of wash over. Let's let those be the words for the morning, and you just sit. So right now, church, would you stand up? Band, lead us in this song. And if you want to express that you're in pain, remain seated, please.
you're standing, stay standing. If you're seated, stay seated. Jesus, we are just in awe to watch you be the one who was truly forsaken in his pain. And Jesus, because you did that, it leaves a legacy, it leaves a reality that we, as your followers, are not forsaken in our pain. Thank you for that. Help us cling to the truth that the healing of us in all of ourselves is in your hands. God, for my friends in this room, some that I know very well and have walked for years with, and some who I've met this morning, I pray that you would fill us up with faith. Fill us up with eyes to see, God, that your timing in our life is perfect. I thank you, God, for people in our very midst who walk with pain every single day, and they do not forsake assembling together with the body of Christ. Just them showing up here is a massive encouragement to my faith. Thank you for them, God. God, for those of us who have walked away from people that are suffering, bring us back to their bedside, God. Forgive us for forgetting to ask, checking in on how they're doing. God, give us language to understand one another. Those of us who are in deep chronic pain and those of us who can't relate to that, God, bind us together, bring us together. We need each other. We know that you can do this. We trust, God, that you have our good in mind. You are the all-gracious God. And it's in Jesus' name who bled and died and rose again for us that we can come into your throne room and beg of you and make giant requests. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.